here with Paul. I'm Jonathan. I'm introducing the podcast today. I thought it would be a good idea to interview Paul and have his experience put forth about him being a missionary in Japan. He and Faith were there for 25 plus years, and Faith's family had been in Japan much longer than that. And by talking about the Maxi family in Japan and then uh, Paul's own experience there, we can about hit the history of Japanese missions, at least since World War II. So uh, as we wanted to begin, I wondered if, Paul, you would begin just by talking about the history of missions in Japan just sort of broadly, if you wanted to, if you could tell that story to introduce the topic. Well, in the, uh, of course, the the big, the, the broadest topic is that usually we, we would say that you know, Xavier came in the 1500s and that, uh, you know, C.R. Boxer describes the rapid spread of Christianity in Japan uh, as the Christian century because there was no Asian country uh, Mm -hmm. that so rapidly embraced uh, the the faith and, of course, the particular Roman Catholic faith. Now, actually, there is a kind of, you know, to imagine that that is the beginning. Many would say, well, even before Xavier came, and this is usually not explored in any of the literature, that it, it seems that there were, uh, on the Silk Road, uh, that there were Eastern uh, um, Orthodox missionaries, or, or at least travelers, who came into Japan, and so in places in Kyoto, there are shrines and there are, I even have visited a, a places, there's a well in which there are Hebrew inscriptions, you know, um, I- indicating a kind of Christian presence. And mm-hmm. some would say that it's even reflected in the shrines. And I think, I think some people get a little carried away with this in talking about Shinto as reflecting a kind of uh, Jewish influence. Uh, I, I just, I'm not sure about that. I don't know what that would mean. So mm-hmm. there, that at least predating Xavier and then Xavier, and of course, uh, with the rapid spread, the Tokugawas, in fact, uh, became nervous enough with the, they were whole uh, tribes of people uh, that had converted to Christianity, and that became a kind of political uh, force in the country so that uh, Yesu Tokugawa, or uh, that eventually the uh, there was a, br- a crackdown, and so the closing of the country. And then... Yeah, and maybe if we just wanted to lay that out for people listening that aren't familiar with the history, uh, Xavier, of course, is a... Roman Catholic, and he's a Jesuit uh, missionary, and he is being sent out by Ignatius Loyola himself. And I think he first travels in India before eventually heading to Japan. And Xavier uh, is one of the most successful missionaries probably in the history of missions. Uh, But as he was converting people in Japan, these weren't just village people. He he was converting high-profile Christians. Is that not right? And even in the samurai class? And that's the odd thing in Japan that, you know, usually when we think of the influx of Christianity, that it's with the lower classes and then may work its way up. But in Japan, it seemed that from the very beginning, it became uh, identified with the upper classes, with the elites, which in fact, 
at one level may sound good, but in the end, I think it's going to work against uh, Christianity in Japan. Mm-hmm. So that even to this day, there are there's a small number of Christians, but very often they are still uh, educated elites, or they're they're mm-hmm. people who have you know been Christians for uh, their families have been traditionally Christian. And so there, it, it is often identified with a kind of intellectualism or a Western idea. And even the mu kyokai, you know, the, the non-church uh, church in Japan, uh, it's a very heady uh, kind of group that it's mainly focused on study. And so, mm-hmm. yes, but, but also connected with that, of course, is that though the numbers have been very small, uh, for Christians in Japan, the impact has been huge so that politically mm-hmm. and socially that uh, Christianity has had a, a huge impact just on the, the like in, you know, the, the political setting, you know, the communist and socialist parties have often uh, identified with either they were Christian or they've been identified with Christian mm-hmm. causes. Okay. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, as you point out, maybe not uh, completely a positive thing because it, Christianity isn't necessarily, at least at this point in time, a livable option for many common people. It, it doesn't seem like something they would have access to in the same way as if you had education or training. And maybe that's it, that in some way, you know, it'd be it, uh, that there is still a very strong uh, religious tradition, which may sound odd because <clears throat> many Japanese don't count themselves religious, but when you get into the farming communities or the rural communities or, you know, that so much of what takes place is interwoven either with the Buddhist temple, you know, the education, hmm. the uh, just daily or, or rit- the major rituals in, in the life, the birth, death, marriage are all connected either with shrines or temples. And it, it may be that it's uh, harder for, uh, the lower classes uh, to extract themselves then mm-hmm. because their lives are very much interwoven with the tradition. Now, obviously, that as the country becomes more uh, the, the focused on the cities and also more cosmopolitan, the more that people travel, uh, I, I'm guessing that you could gauge the the people who have gone outside, lived outside of Japan, and that percentage would also be connected directly with the rise in uh, the numbers of Christians. Not that it's a one-to-one correspondence, but the people that are very often most open to the gospel are those who have in some way lived outside the country or had influence from uh, outside of the country. Yeah, and that that didn't happen by chance. If we go back to the history that you were talking about with uh, the reign of the Tokugawas, um, the, the shogunate, this is after a time period when there were a lot of like almost feudal warlords all vying for power, and then power was centralized. And as they do this, this accompanies the persecution. Is that correct? Yeah, that... Uh... You, you actually have wars, you know, that there, there are civil wars in the country. And um, the entire groups or tribes are, it, it, it's strange that if you go, if you ever get the opportunity to go to 
Nagasaki or the museums there, that you have entire tribes that are Christian, and they are, it looks very much like the old medieval knights in you know, Western countries. They have swords emblazoned on their, mm. or, or crosses emblazoned on their shields and, you know, things that, that clearly they're identifying fighting under the sign of the cross, as ironic as that may be. Uh, and so the, the, with the closure of the country, the, the whole point of the closure is an ideological as well as militaristic that Japan is one of the, you know, it is an island country. And so they controlled the access of anybody to foreigners to the country. So they, they closed mm -hmm. it to every foreign influence other than the port there in uh, Nagasaki, the Dutch little island that they uh, allowed Dutch traders to come in and, uh, so there, but they they strictly limited uh, foreign influence, and then simultaneous with that began a harsh period of persecution. If uh, if you want to catch an idea of what that was like, uh, Shusaku Endo uh, wrote his novel Shimoku or Silence that uh, has recently been made into a movie Silence um, that. Uh, portrays then the harsh uh, persecution. Now, what what the movie may not accurately portray, and what Shusaku Endo not Endo's novel may have not accurately portrayed, uh, is that with the the, the this persecution was uh, uh, some think that maybe tens of thousands of people may have died hmm. a martyr's death. You know, the, in the novel. The focus is primarily on those who became apostate and uh, and on an apostate priest who who a Jesuit priest, um, but which which actually was based on a historical character. But he the the focus on that may be a, a bit untrue in that it does not capture the fact. Yeah, but lots of people uh died a martyr's death and even in nagasaki you know they have the the martyrs who were crucified i can't remember what was it some 13 martyrs <laughs> crucified there so that it was a harsh persecution over uh, a, a 200 year period and yet the the christians in some fashion and you know you could debate to what degree any kind of authentic christianity survived but they went underground and continued mm -hmm. uh, to practice the faith. So Christianity goes underground and then is just non-existent in the public sphere for this uh, period. And then what brings that to an end? So, uh, of course, the Japanese islands became a, a, a key choice spot as the various countries, you know, the uh, the trading countries, and in particular America. Mm -hmm. So Admiral Perry, uh, in the 1850s, was it, or 18, uh, that he first goes there, but by the 1860s, they've opened up. He, uh, you know, goes into Tokyo Bay with gunships. Mm -hmm. And Admiral Perry was a Christian uh, and uh, brought gifts, and, you know, obviously there was the kind of you open the country or we're going to blast your 
Yeah, we're going to blow you up here. <laughs> and we're either going to destroy your city or you're going to trade with us. But since you're going to trade with us because we're forcing you to, here's, here are some presents. Here's some presents. And uh, in the presents, they gave, uh, you know, he gave them a Bible, and which was probably the worst thing he could have done. They immediately refused mm-hmm. that and got the idea that from the very beginning, this pilot that uh, back in the 1500s, the reason the country was ultimately closed uh, uh, a pilot of ship and form through intermediators to the shogun. Well, this is the way the Westerners do things. They'll they'll come in, they'll convert you to Christianity, and then they'll come in and take you take over the country, which of course is not entirely untrue. That's the the kind of yeah. way that the uh, the the Portuguese and the Spanish and others were colonized these countries, and this is precisely then what they the threat they see with the Americans. And so they refuse the, the Bible. They say, well, we, we don't want your presence if you don't take that back. But eventually, you know, the Americans, they do force their way in and then begins what is called the Meiji Restoration, which is simply uh, a, a, an attempt on the part of the government. They see that the West is coming. And so there is this focus upon out the outside, and so the country during this time uh, finally unifies. The civil wars are finally, you know, the, that there's a centralized government and all the various rebellious groups are brought under control. Uh, and so they began to try to establish a centralized government at the same time, and they specifically take the British Empire uh, as their model, and the relationship between the king and the church is is what their their the discussions are. And so, you have Shinto representatives, Buddhist representatives, and the government elites there. And in this discussion, then they decide to create a Shinto kind of state. And they the restoration is well, they're going to restore the emperor as the central figurehead. I don't think that he was ever actually in control mm-hmm. of things. He, he had been always been manipulated an instrument of whoever, whatever shogun or whoever had power. And so Shinto, the, the uh, state Shinto is established and the central, central government then sends out missionaries from the central government to, <clears throat> You know, evangel. I don't know how to say it, but in some way to bring the country uh, into line with their understanding of the role of Shinto. So mm-hmm. Shinto is, you know, you can use this word. Uh, it's sort of like if when you talk about uh, Hinduism. Well, mm-hmm. Hinduism is actually just an, a, a, a Western word describing the religions of India, and in a sense, state Shinto is going to function to unify the various forms of, you know, Shintoism. So it wasn't necessarily a unified religious understanding, but state Shinto is going to bring that about and is going to bring about a unity in the practices. So, I mean, one of the biggies is that prior to, uh, you know, the, well, it occurs in both Tokugawa, but it's kind of solidified in the major restoration that um, Shinto would not deal with the dead. 
there'd be no funerals. Though to this day, in some places, you can find Shinto funerals. But back in the Tokugawa period, the Buddhists had kind of, that had become their area and that solidified. And so they kind of divide up the rituals and practices and bring a, 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 a attempt to bring a uniformity through the religion. And with that, they're trying to create a kind of public ethos or public ethic where in the, you know, the Tokugawa period, they could physically just kill you or uh, force the Westerners to stay out. And they, that in the Meiji period, there is the recognition on the part of the government that they're going to have to ideologically uh, mm. create a barrier because they can't physically keep the Westerners out. And this is also during the time of, uh, you know, trying to build a national identity. Like, you know, Japan's at war with Russia in the early 20th century and then at war with, or uh, even in the late, uh, rather it's the late 19th century, I guess. Japan's mm -hmm. at war with Russia, defeats them, is at war in China. And then eventually, of course, this is leading up to World War II, uh, the militarization, and having a national Japan, a unified Japan. And you're saying that state Shinto as a religion is working to manufacture an ideology that makes that national identity possible. That's right. And even, you know, even the word religion, my, my nephew who teaches at Amherst University has written a, he actually, while I was there in Japan, he came and studied the state, the archives in the, uh, uh, in the capital. And, uh, his his research then focused even on the term religion, shukyo in mm. Japanese. And they didn't know what to call this ethos, this Shinto, this state Shinto. Is state Shinto, is this a religion? Is it and of course they're they're going to go back and forth and but but the the end point is yes, they're trying to create an ideology that will unify and create then uh, a kind of Japanese identity, Japanese-ness. And so even to this day, you know, when you ask, are the Japanese religious, they'll often answer, you know, no. But if you ask them about their identity, it is always very much tied up into being Japanese, speaking the Japanese language, and the idea of a kind of uniqueness to being Japanese. Mm -hmm. now, well, I love uh, one of your stories. And this may have actually, they may have been using a Buddhist priest or something, but, you know, you said that the kids were going to swim in the pool, and so they have a priest come in and drive out all the water demons. And you ask somebody, well, is, this is a pra you're practicing religion, right? And they say, oh, no, no, this is just good swimming safety. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you want the demons to, and that, and there is that attitude in so many things uh, that if you build a house, you're going to have the Shinto priest come and uh, drive off, you know, ward off any demons that might be there. In any public building, a bank building, uh, that even uh, there is a shrine dedicated. If you buy a new car, you can take it to the shrine and the priest will bless your car and drive out because high, highway safety is very important in Japan. So many, it's actually not a very safe country to drive in. <laughs> but this is the ethos that, 
you could at least talk about the missions being sent from the Christian churches and churches of Christ. These independent missionaries were going to a Japan that was very much formed by this manufactured national identity. Yeah, this is, I mean, this becomes very complicated because, you know, you have first who was at Clark that was up in Hokkaido, and he's just there for a year, but he's establishing a kind of vocational school in Hokkaido and Shusaku Endoki, or not in uh, um, Uchimoto Kanzo, and, and there are about eight boys there that are going to become very influential. And, and their understanding of Christianity is through Clark. Uchimoto Kanzo, of course, will come and study in the United States. He actually goes to Amherst University. For the most part, he has a terrible experience in the United States. Does you know? Obviously, there's prejudice, uh, and uh, he feels that. But also, the thing that he absorbs is that nationalism in the United States and Christianity are very much fused. And so, he's going to raise the question that is the the reigning question in this period. You know, who do I love more, Japan or Jesus? And the idea is that, well, in the West, to be Christian is to be an American. Well, what does that mean for Japanese? Uh, So that being Christian Mm -hmm. is pitted against being Japanese. And so he, this is part of the Mukyokai. He does away with any kind of church, uh, public church. Yeah, it's not exactly true. They have meetings, but there's no... They, they they have no buildings or hierarchy. They just have teachers. But what is being negotiated then is the problem that Western missionaries are bringing, or even those Christians who come and study in the States, to negotiate the idea of nationalism and Christian identity uh, and how do you how do you distinguish those two things? And maybe that's still the the problem because, of course, identity in Japan is still a nationalistic identity, and that's all interwoven with Shinto and Buddhism and a religious identity. Mm-hmm. And so, to convert to Christianity in some way will continue to be a threat then to what is understood to be uh, the main identity of being being Japanese. How can you do both? You know, is is the idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the the Western missionaries are aggravating this situation most for the most part because they can't that they themselves have not succeeded in extracting their faith from their national identity. And so this is uh, sort of the crisis um, for missions in Japan in Japan, but this is also one of the reasons why Japan is one of the most unreached places in the world as far as if you're thinking in terms of Christian mission. Yeah, I mean, this, uh, that, that's the big question. Why has this country, uh, which is, in many ways, it's, you know, it was always the model for modernization for after the war, it became the, you know, MacArthur wanted Japan to be the Switzerland of Asia, and so he was holding it up as kind of the model of what a Western, you know, liberal democracy would look like in Asia. And it really worked. I mean, in so many ways that Japan modernized, it uh, has been economically 
highly successful politically. It's been stable. Uh, the, the peace constitution that MacArthur crafted uh, until just this past year, uh, I think that yeah. it, it succeeded in keeping Japan outside of most any uh, conflicts, you know, except where the United States have, has been trying, ironically, to destroy the constitution that they created for the Japanese because they wanted Japanese military, which is not mm -hmm. called, it's called the self-defense forces because they could not engage in any kind of overt uh, action other than defense. Um, other than that, they, they really couldn't d d engage in international conflict, though I think if you discount the standing army, it's one of the 10 largest militaries in the world. So, uh, yeah. What was your question there? I, <laughs> I lost. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I think uh, we've done a good job in sort of laying the groundwork for missions in Japan. But what's a little bit more personal is uh, how you ended up there. So we could start with your father-in-law uh, and his, tra his travels. He was uh, well, you you can tell the story, but he was in the military as a chaplain in the Philippines, yeah. right? And then ended up in Japan briefly and decided to go back. Yeah, so he, he was stationed in the Philippines, and he's written a book on the history of missions in the Philippines that uh, he, had, he had actually started before, you know, he had finished. And, but uh, he, it, in Christian churches, that's a key history. And then he goes to... And we should probably say his name. I, I just realized we're talking about Mark Maxey. Mark Maxey and the Maxeys. The Maxeys, there were five, you know, siblings. And uh, all then did significant work. His uh, brother started the uh, Black College in Louisville, Kentucky. Another sister was with the Morses in China. Uh, and, and did work there, and Mark then went to Japan. Maybe I, let, uh, I keep going back to the history, but again, Japan has been a key part of the history of missions in Christian churches. Mm -hmm. And this does relate to me personally, because the uh, Cunningham uh, was one of the early missionaries that went out as an independent missionary that he, he got polio and was going out on a mission agency, and they then rejected him. And so he went and raised funds and was had done a mission activity in, in uh, Tokyo and had lots of properties. And so the property that I would eventually rent and start a school on was actually part of the Cunningham mission. But uh, Mark Maxey and his family then, they were transferred in the military to Japan, and uh, there was a, a chaplain in Kagoshima in Kanoi, a little town there in Kagoshima Prefecture. There was an air base located there. In fact, it was where the kamikaze pilots uh, had taken off from and had practiced in the, the King Ko base. This is on the very southern tip of Japan. Right. It's on, on the uh, southern tip of Kyushu. Uh, of course, it's not, you know, it's north of Okinawa. Mm -hmm. uh, it, there's a bay there that's a kind of shallow bay with a volcano in the middle. And <clears throat> there was a group that this chaplain had uh, gotten together. Uh, I And uh, so Mark 
they asked him to come. And so he went after the war, went there in 1950 as an independent missionary. And so he, you know, the, the, he calls his book describing it way down here, uh, because it is so far removed from the center of activity in Japan. It is a rural uh, community, even in Kagoshima. It's, you know, it's not in a, the, the capital city in Kagoshima is Kagoshima City. Um, and so he uh, begins working there, uh, Hideo Yoshi uh, and Hideto Yoshi. There's a brothers there, both become preachers. Uh, one has just passed away this past year, or this year, rather, uh, who was the preacher there and was uh, very influential in the churches in Japan. Um, I think Mark started some seven churches in uh, the very in the area there in uh, the island south of there. There would be a church, Tanigashima, over and his sister would come actually from uh, China later, and she started a church in Kagoshima City. That church is still there. And then his son Walter, who is still there and has been there, I don't know, some forty years. He started a couple of churches, one in uh, Yoshino and the other in uh, Kokubu, which is south or north of the bay there. Um, and so there's there's been a lot, even though it's a rural area, there's been a concentration of some, you know, 10 churches. And then for most of these churches, he recruited uh, ministers. And we're now mm-hmm. in a period when, you know, this was all taking place in the 1950s, 1960s. Many of these ministers, these young men who were teenagers, who he went, now they've grown old and passed away. And so there is a kind of de- the depletion of uh, that pre-war period was the active period in Japan when there was the big influx flux of Christians. In Japan, there was a seminary that was established. Well, actually, there was two. One was established in uh, Tokyo, which uh, the Tokyo Bible Seminary and then Osaka Bible Seminary. Tokyo Seminary would last for about 10 years, and the Osaka Seminary, which just this at this uh, international conference on mission, they recognized the president uh, who was a teenager or college student when we went, and the president emeritus, Paul Clark. Uh, Paul's father was, I think, the uh, one one of those who was called out originally to be president at Osaka. So uh, he worked there for the rest of his life. Both his wife and he are buried there uh, in Kanoya and and established a significant work, not only there, but probably any church that you go to uh, in Japan. I don't think it's an exaggeration. That is that people didn't stay in these rural areas. Uh, they've spread out all over Japan. And so there, there are Christians all over Japan that originally come from that area. And the churches then reflect that. So that's his history. And so his uh, son was there in 1980. We went, did Faith and I went and worked uh, at the church there in Kagoshima. We did that work for a year. And uh, then we decided 
Faith had grown up with her father, you know, raising support. Mm-hmm. This was during the period when it was easy. It was easier to make a living. You know, the economy was not great in Japan, and so he could, you could live fairly cheaply. But soon, of course, that reversed itself, so that when we were going, uh, Japan was much more expensive to live uh, than the United States. So we decided to come back as uh, self-supporting missionaries. I did a degree in linguistics, so I would teach in universities and uh, various places to make a living. So we went back in 1984 uh, and located north of Tokyo. Uh, I was hired to teach in a school there, Meikei High School, which uh, had uh, it accepted... Kikoku Shijo, which are children that have lived overseas and have returned to Japan. Mm. So there were these special schools that were established, which already must, I think that must seem, I think it's the only country in the world that has special mm. schools. Well, this is interesting about the way they perceive their own identity as well, uh, what it means to be Japanese, because uh, as you've said in the past, these schools are there because the propaganda is that in some way these children have been damaged by living in Western countries. Yeah. But really they're getting a first rate education. Yeah. This is kind of a double edged sword that, um, actually a Oxford researcher who was at make while I was there, he's written a book on it. Uh, and that, you know, it's still the, it sounds something like out of the Tokugawa period. Oh, they've been outside of the country mm-hmm. and now they'll have to be re-educated to be Japanese. Mm-hmm. And of course the... So I think it's just good to emphasize there's still that uh, contrast or at least people are, Japanese people, even in this, as recent as, when is this, the 1980s or 1990s? Right, right. Uh, are still seeing a Japanese identity as being unique in such a way that it is still going to be pitted over and against anything that any of the entrapments of Western culture. And this is, you know, uh, Roy Andrew Miller uh, has written on this, uh, the, the myth of Japanese uniqueness. Who's the other guy I've had you read his book? Uh, they're both the, thinking of Peter Dale, Peter Dale's book. Yeah. Uh, Peter Dale just goes through all of the areas, you know, anthropology, uh, the the monkey studies, the bee studies, the language studies. You just go right on through that. The focus is upon uh, a kind of discovering Japanese uniqueness. I did a lot of uh, work on the brain studies. So there was a Tadanobu Tsunoda. His, uh, he was at uh, Ochinomizu Medical and Dental College. I actually went and talked to him there at the college. Uh, he had done research on the brains of Japanese uh, and discovered that uh, Japanese brains function differently because of the language, uh, that it's a vowel-dominant language. And because of this, uh, the Japanese tend to receive the sounds of nature and other sounds in the left side of the brain. And this just goes on and on. He, he, at one time he was 
perhaps the most well-known science scientist in in Japan and went all over the uh, nation speaking uh, about how the brain then of Japanese is very much tied to the language. And if you would take a Japanese child then out of that and teach them English or if they should become bilingual, uh, that something on the order of brain damage occurs uh, in that they lose the Japanese brain capacities. Uh, and are no longer able to, you know, the left brain dominant kind of understanding that brings about a peaceful harmony uh, with nature and, uh, mm-hmm. and with other people. This is all part of a body of literature. This is one part. Uh, and you could do it in studies of the weather. You could do it in which uh, the focus is on the, the Japanese people are the most unique people in the world uh, that have achieved a peace and harmony and a spirit uh, that cannot be duplicated uh, outside of the country. And it's all very much tied to the religion. It's tied to the language, mm. but it's also tied then to the islands themselves that uh, the islands have a weather patterns and, you know, it, it, uh, now this all may sound, this may sound bizarre. I hope it sounds bizarre. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it should sound bizarre. <laughs> but, uh, before we dismiss it completely, what has to be recognized, I'm not, and Peter Dale does this a little bit. I, I think he forgets it at some point. Yeah, but this kind of talk originates in England, hmm. that all the English language is the most unique language, the religion, you know, it's the same talk, even the up to and including the idea of uh, geographical weather patterns mm-hmm. producing, that that was all, those were all Western things. And so we are seeing from the Meiji Restoration on a mirroring of the West to block out the West. That's it. That's it. Uh, one Japanese intellectual, in fact, has written a book entitled that, that the mirror, you know, Japan is the mirror of the West. That it is, Mm -hmm. it takes all of these ideas, incorporates it into an ideology that will be powerful enough to ward off the West in and through the very mode that the Western countries are using to colonize and dominate other countries. And I think this is important to our discussion because what what we're saying is that it's really difficult to do missions in Japan because you actually have uh, ideological forces that have been knowingly aligned to keep Christianity out. So this is perhaps why there are so many independent missionaries in Japan, and that's a big part of the history of mission in Japan as well, that your father-in-law, Mark Maxey, was an independent missionary and somebody who was associated with independent missions more so, and you yourself and Faith were independent missionaries there. And if you would, talk to why maybe there are, Japan was better suited for independent missions or why maybe only independent missionaries would go there, and then why somebody like uh, Mark Maxey would have been so against 
going away from that model? Well, I don't know that it was only. I mean, in our churches, uh, that was the case. It, you know, the, the mission agencies mm-hmm. um, did not go there from, you know, the CMF or other mission agencies. Um, the part of what had happened during the war is that the disciples, for example, were absorbed into uh, the state church there. And so that group disappears. Um, so that that's part of that. The, the other thing is, by this point in time, Japan, you know, af- after the pre-war period, it is clearly such a resistant field, and it had always been a, a resistant field. There will be mission agencies that work there and send people there, but they've also then, many of them have pulled out of Japan because the that it is such a uh, a resistant field, the work there goes very slowly. This is uh, you know Shusaku Endo's picture of Japan is that it's a mud swamp mm-hmm. that uh, you cannot put the plant the Christian you know seed there that the the swamp then will rot that seed that it will not take root. It may sprout, but it's it's going to be undone. And and I think that's the experience of many missionaries there, that they may have a little success, but but also that success just seems to erode, uh, that there does not seem to be an enduring success. Now, as I say, I think uh, that that there's a a kind of misunderstanding with Shusaku Endo. He himself is describing, I think, more of Japan in the modern period and projecting that back onto the Tokugawa mm. period. I don't think Japan ever had actually any problem taking root yeah. until... Yeah, there's a difference between persecution and Christianity not flourishing. That's right. That that persecution succeeded in just killing off people, uh, but in a sense the ideology proved more effective. And the ideology, I mean, Japan had always, there had always been some degree of that, but there was really a concentrated effort to produce a nationalistic ideology through the modern, you know, the the 1800s up through the, the, even now. Um, That has, I think, been the key to warding off, that it really did work better even uh, than just the physical persecution. Uh, that uh, so that the work there has always been very slow, um, mm-hmm. and uh, it it just uh, you know the the churches there are small. If if you have a church of twenty people, that's about average. Um, and mission agencies have many have just pulled out because what is being expected. Mm-hmm. This is part of a, I don't know if what you're behind your question here, but part of it may be, you know, the whole idea of church growth and that philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, who is the uh, the church growth expert um, that comes out of India? He had been a missionary in India uh, and is really, you know, again, with the disciples of Christ and then the Christian churches um, that he comes to Japan and, and says, well, this, you know, if if you would follow that model uh, of producing of a kind of pragmatic 
uh, expectation. Mm-hmm. No, nobody would ever go go to Japan. Yeah, and that's that's what I was driving at. That I remember a, a day in class with you as a world religions class, and Faith's brother Walter was there, and th- he wrote his dissertation saying that Japan's not a mud swamp. Is that correct? Yeah, he had written it on on Shusaku Endo and uh, you know his thesis and combating that thesis, uh, and of course. You know, I, I, it, part of this depends on what you think that means, that it's a yeah. mud swamp. I think that what Indo meant is that there is just something inherent to the Japanese people that makes Japan a, a mud swamp. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, of course, that's just not true because actually yeah, – to that we would want to say no uh, – uh, on the other hand, it is that people have worked actively to create an ideology and an atmosphere, a cultural ethos that is to keep Christianity out. And so I think part of uh, what's so wonderful about interviewing you and talking about your history there, but just the history of missions in general, is even though that's the case, there still have been missionaries who have been able to make their whole lives there and have started many churches and uh, I remember being at ICOM just a few, the International Conference on Missions just a few weeks ago, and seeing all the Japanese ministers or pictures of the Japanese ministers that are now in churches there because of these missions. So something has worked. Uh, at least it's worked in the lives of certain individuals. So if our vision for Christianity is such that we are just making disciples rather than creating movements places, uh, there's no reason to think that Japan's a true mud swamp uh, in the sense of that, yeah, you're never going to probably start megachurches in Japan. It's absolutely a mud swamp. And I think, you know, I'm never sure how, uh, I've always thought that it would help for people to be aware of <clears throat> just what I've just described. I don't know that how effective it would be <laughs> to explain this to people, but I think if missionaries understood what it is that they're working against, that you're working against an ideology, but that's always what we're working against, mm-hmm. that we are all ensconced in some sort of ide- ideological understanding, that in this instance, it's actually one that, that has come from the West, the nationalism fused with the Christianity. Mm-hmm. And un- right. until we can extract ourselves from that here, I'm not sure that we're able to do the hard work in a place like Japan of extracting that the, the two things. That is what Christianity does. It com- combats ideology. It undoes. It deconstructs. But if we don't know, if we're not aware of that, we don't understand how that functions, we may not be prepared to do the hard work in a place mm-hmm. like Japan uh, where, where, I mean, it's so obvious that it's an ideology, mm-hmm. primarily That's because right. it's so anti-Western in many instances, or mm-hmm. or anti-Christian. It's not anti-Western in technology or business or, mm-hmm. or even politics, uh, but it is anti-Christian in that that was always seen to be the nub of the way that people would be pacified uh, and and in some way turned against uh, the, uh, a Japanese national identity. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and what's uh, so fascinating, I think, for me and why I wanted to do, why I wanted to talk with you a little bit about this is just because when I think of your own story, having come out of little Christian church Bible colleges and being probably formed in what would be more, uh, or at least considered, especially at this point, a more fundamentalist tradition and armed to the teeth with you know, the apologetic arguments and classical Christianity as done in that atmosphere. And yet you spent 25 years in Japan and you come out of there writing a, a dissertation on Slavoj Zizek and salvation in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 that's uh, much more closely aligned with uh, classical Christianity, the traditional Christian doctrines of the early church and patristic theology than you would have gotten anywhere else. And so Japan almost, or a place like this, causes us to reflect in such a way that we have to truly be Christians in the sense that we realize, uh, you know, Christ is a culture, the kingdom of God is uh, a culture that is realized in us, and that the community of Christians really does form a church that participates directly in the life of the Trinity and thereby participating in the kingdom of God here on earth. And so you get that in a place that almost forces you into being a Christian only. But wow. I think in the West, we it, it's too easy to assimilate to our culture because even secular culture, we talked about this just weeks ago, even secular culture has been formed theologically. Of course, it's bad theology, mm-hmm. but it's still... Uh, fits too comfortably with Christianity or with a, a version of Christianity that is uh, not necessarily authentic. And so I think the purpose of doing this podcast is for people to be able to hear the history of Christianity in a place that has not been successful. Because we all live in, uh, you know, I mean, most English people, English speaking people live in places where Christianity at least has been tremendously successful. Now, whether it will be in the future, that remains to be seen. But even even the secular world that we're fashioning is one that's been theologically formed. Uh, but to see Christianity in a place where it's not successful by our standards, you, you do see a, a vision of what Christianity ought to be. It is the people who uh, have had to suffer, or it, Christianity is those who have, have have had to become so informed that they're able to deal with the question of, well, am I Japanese or am I Christian? Because that's the question that's put to all of us, but I don't think we're as forced to grapple with it as Christians in Japan have been. I really like the way you put that, and of course, I'm, you know, the, the description of, I think uh, that, uh, you know, someone... I came out of a little Bible college, a typical seminary education, that fully unprepared me to be. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, of course, what you're describing is, is I think, the reason that we should all be missionaries and should be all, because that's the way we become Christian. Mm-hmm. But as we, as we attempt to cross cultural barriers, in some way it, uh, what a a Christianity, some sort of authentic, you know, cosmopolitan or, you know, uh, something beyond a, a a localized provincial Christianity would be, uh, that it it for the 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 mission of the church is the very means by which I think we encounter Christ. 
Uh, because what we encounter as we go to the other or the uh, is the recognition that there is uh, Christ does cross cultures, but very often we have to leave all the baggage that we would attach mm-hmm. to Christianity, and that's of course what you're describing is that I thought that you know the typical thing that you go over and you tell people convincing arguments about in a Paul, and of course the the apologetic arguments just that's such a Western. Uh, and maybe a Latin, you know, uh, mm-hmm. part of that tradition that I simply was not aware of the kind of intermingling or uh, of rationalistic, philosophical, modernistic arguments that just in no way resonate uh, out in a culture like Japan, and I, I would assume mm-hmm. in any traditional culture. Uh, and so that, uh, it, I was not particularly bright. It took me a long time to realize, oh, I'm just beating my head up against the wall in so many areas. But, of course, there, at the same time, there is always the sense that in spite of the weakness of the vessels that uh, are bringing the gospel, the gospel always does something more than than what we yeah. are. You know. right. And so that, that was what broke down, I think, in, in my life is just... Uh, uh, I, I mm-hmm. kind of my whole education, my orientation, the, that it it uh, crumbled in in many ways. And I think partly because I was very much I was trying to engage uh, in a, in an ideological and intellectual way in in Japan, and so we had started a college there. Um which afforded me the opportunity to, to perhaps do things that many, to reflect in a way that perhaps not many missionaries do, and that is that to, to kind of draw back and uh, engage also then. There is a rich intellectual tradition in Japan uh, in which uh, I think some of the you know am- amazing uh, postmodern thinkers are actually Japanese, uh, and so they're very reflective on this interaction. And so I began to interact with uh, a lot of postmodern thinkers. And and the truth of that, as it reflected on Christianity, uh, kind of came together. So, you know, why would somebody in Japan write a book on psychoanalysis, of all things? Because in, in terms of the large picture... Uh, of course, Japanese are not that interested in psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. but in, in a small way, they, it has had uh, uh, through a small entry point. It's had a huge impact in that part of what is called Nihon Jinron, or the ideology of being Japanese. One of the key thinkers is a psychologist, is a psychoanalyst, uh, Takeo Doi, and Doi then had studied under. Uh, Kozawa, who had himself studied directly under Sigmund Freud. And uh, Kozawa brings psychoanalysis to Japan, and one of the members of the royal family even becomes a psychoanalyst. And there's two. In Freud's lifetime, there are two psychoanalytic societies established in Japan, one in Tokyo and one in Osaka. Uh, And though the Japanese would never... 
you know, lend themselves. It doesn't lend itself to the kind of the analytic uh, process that takes place in the West. Nonetheless, they, these thinkers have had a huge impact there. And that was my entry point. I, I hadn't studied psychology or psychoanalysis. But I began to recognize that Takeo Doi and Kozawa, of course, they're taking a Freudian understanding in terms of the death drive and applying it uh, as they're in, in a reverse fashion. This all gets maybe more detailed than anybody wants to, to hear, but uh, where the death drive is a, a negative thing in the West, it's privileged as a positive process in Zen Buddhism, or, you know, Doi, who in fact is Presbyterian, like many Christians in Japan, is still very Buddhist in his thought. And he describes the death drive then as the culmination of uh, the processes of Zen enlightenment in which one becomes one with the universe through a process of dissolution and death. He does precisely, he describes the death drive in terms of what Freud called the nirvana principle. I don't know that anybody has, uh, I've written an entire manuscript on this, but I have no idea who would publish it. Uh, examining Doi's work and demonstrating he's taking, Doi is playing with these Japanese terms, Amai and, you know, all the, the various uh, terms that describe the uniqueness of the Japanese psyche. But what I would argue is he's actually describing these in terms of a Freudian psychoanalytic understanding. But re he's reversing the valuation that's put upon them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's, that's the, in brief, that's what I'm doing. That's why Slavoj Zizek became important in, in my work because I saw, well, what Zizek is doing through a Lacanian psychoanalysis with the focus on the death drive is directly, it directly addresses the ideology of Japanese-ness filtered, mm -hmm. filtered through Takeo Doi. I've never written that. I've never, uh, you know, I kind of, that's, mm -hmm. that's what got me into the, the whole examination of Ro Romans 6, 7, and 8. I think that the this section of scripture is universal. I think what Paul is describing, he's addressing the universal human predicament. Now, to say that, that doesn't mean that you just automatically uh, are going to understand how that might have manifested itself in a local situation. Someday, maybe when I'm um, old, <laughs> I'll sit down and write this out, that I think there is that, Romans 6, 7, and 8 directly deconstructs the psyche as you have it presented in Takeo's Doi's picture of the uniqueness of a Japanese understanding. Mm -hmm. And so what's interesting is it's a missionary experience that one stimulates uh, deep and critical reflective thinking. And it's, it's eminently practical. Because you're trying to figure out how do I how do I be a Christian on the ground as a missionary, and uh, 
wouldn't you know, as the culmination of those things, what you get, I think, is an authentic version of Christianity that lends itself back again directly to being on mission. So that's what you were saying. We all have to have a missionary experience. And maybe that is because, you know, the mission of God is reflective of God's own character. So that as we are on mission for God, we too become more like God or more Christ-like. So this discussion has been wonderful, and uh, perhaps we should even pursue it further sometime. But I think we're probably probably gone on long enough uh, today. But thank you so much for sharing a little bit about the history of Japan and your own experience. Thank you, John.